The National Spectrum Consortium, funded by the Defense Department, is devoted to R&D related to the emerging 5G and related Internet of Things technologies. Now it has a new executive director with Capitol Hill, Pentagon, and industry experience. Dr. Marin Lead joins me now in studio. Dr. Lead, good to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. And let's begin with the status of the consortium now. You are past the original five-year funding from the Pentagon into a new phase. What's going on? Well, so we were very fortunate to win a new, what is called other transaction agreement, a special kind of contracting authority that is much more flexible than the traditional contract arrangement that really allows our 430 plus members to engage in a very different way with the Defense Department than a traditional contract would allow. So it's very exciting. And these 430 members are a variety of types of organizations, aren't they? Our variety is really our strength, right? We have a huge mix of both very large traditional telecom. We have large traditional defense suppliers. We have very small startups, mostly not in the defense business. And so that's, again, a huge part of our value proposition is bringing those non-traditional suppliers into the defense world in a way that is streamlined and makes it easier for them to gain access to that market and vice versa. And where in the Pentagon's need for future technological capability, for future offset strength and all of that, does the consortium and, more important, the work that it does actually fit? Well, so I like to think we're at the center of that, right? The defense leadership is talking about new ways of having to do command and control, being able to leverage the electromagnetic spectrum in dynamic and flexible and agile ways that are sort of unparalleled historically and enabled by the technology that's really at the centerpiece of what our members do. And some of the members provide 5G. I see AT&T is on there, and many of them are resellers or users of it. Now, what is the status of 5G in terms of the work you're doing? I mean, I've got a 5G phone that says 5G when I'm in a metropolitan area. But what is the real status of it, and how is it useful at this point in history? I think that's really what the Defense Department is trying to get out ahead of under the leadership of Dr. Joe Evans and his team in the Office of Research and Engineering in the Defense Department. They've sponsored a set of pilot projects at multiple bases across the United States where they're looking at what are the Defense Department use cases that also have commercial applications and pushing the frontier of that technology, both so that it can help advance it for domestic use and consumer use, but also to enable the Defense Department to be more efficient and effective. And how does the consortium work? The Pentagon has an idea that it would like to explore, and then it chooses from among the members as to where that particular project award will go? Well, the fundamental sort of secret sauce of the consortium I like to say, is collaboration, right? And it happens in lots of different ways. Collaboration up front with the consortium members and the Defense Department, working through, the Defense Department says, I have a problem. And because we have this flexible agreement in place, they can engage with industry much differently than under a traditional contracting process. So they bring the problem, the consortium members brainstorm with the parts of the department that have a problem. And really, the department gets a very good sense of what the state of technology is. And the consortium members get a really good sense of what the user need is. So that allows the Defense Department to set much better informed requirements than is traditionally the case. And it means that that work gets done 
very quickly and very effectively. So all of our projects have been on time, on budget, and at or above performance requirements, which is kind of unmatched in terms of most Defense Department programs. We're speaking with Dr. Maren Lead. She's executive director of the National Spectrum Consortium. Give us a couple of examples of recent projects that came out in that manner. So a lot of what the consortium has been working on is making spectrum use and in particular enabling sharing between defense uses and commercial uses more efficient. So getting more out of the spectrum that we've got for both sets of users, making it more dynamic so that we can move away from traditional ways of managing spectrum that are very static and non-flexible. Again, greatly enabling more commercial use cases and are kind of essential to 5G. And then also enabling sort of more use cases in ways that can combine both sets of users. So there just was a demonstration of the 5G infrastructure that consortium members have set up to support a logistics base in Albany, Georgia, part of the DOD's 5G effort. And that used both a combination of DOD-controlled and commercially leveraged spectrum, along with millimeter wave, very efficient 5G spectrums. That combination allowed for dramatically increased data rates, the ultra-low latency that 5G promises, in a way that an inside-out private network that really showed the promise of 5G in a way that's just starting to be deployed commercially and really sort of showing the way for how this might be done. So then in one sense, ultimately the government or the DOD could get use of these great technologies, but not be the exclusive user of them and therefore get commercial pricing down the line. That dual use, and again, it's yes for defense purposes, but they run warehouses, they run airports, they do a lot of the same businesses. We just have an open proposal right now to look at telemedicine. So lots of dual use cases where the Defense Department, again, can get more efficient and effective and commercial applications get advanced at the same time. There is a warfighting component to this, too, which is an additional effort and requires some modifications to those things. But it's all informed by the cutting edge tech that we're developing on a day to day basis. And one way to see what the Defense Department is interested in is the new working groups that have been set up by the consortium. Just to briefly tell us what those are. So those working groups are really an effort for the consortium to kind of move beyond its specific taskings that it's getting through the other transaction agreement to step more into the strategic competition in commercial standards that is going on between societies that have a much tighter and more controlling relationship between civil and military uses of technology and like our, China, Russia, <laughs> uh, to some degree, Europe even. So again, those government-private relationships differ around the world, and they influence the evolution of commercial standards. And so the NSC is trying to make use of its very unique and broad membership to push standards development into use cases that might not otherwise get considered and help increase the U.S. competitive advantage in standard setting to benefit both industry and our overall strategic competition position. And is there a component to the consortium's work that involves manufacturing base in Absolutely. the United States? Because, Absolutely. you know, the whole idea of Chinese equipment is a big and ongoing one. So 
That is absolutely a component of what we do, as is a massive amount of cyber capability internal to the consortium. So we have many members who are, again, at the cutting edge of advanced cyber techniques as they apply to some of these new commercial technologies. But ensuring the viability of the supply chain is a key strength of the consortium members. And finally, tell us a little bit about yourself. You didn't come to this from, you know, some (laughs) academic ivory tower. Uh, I didn't. I first sort of got into learning about Spectrum and its uh, and how imperative it is from spending time in Iraq, actually. I was working for a senior member of the Defense Department who sent me to Iraq. Lucky you. It actually was lucky me. Uh, I was very privileged to get to spend time there and to get to understand and try to bring solutions to service members who were being attacked and killed through electronic warfare. And so the imperative perspective becomes pretty apparent sure. when that's your day-to-day life, right? So I got to know that community. I got to know the technology a little bit. And then that led to eventually me having a role in being able to stand up the NSC, a very small role, along with a large number of others. Um, so you worked for the Pentagon. You also worked on Capitol Hill. I did. And not so much in the technology area, but in so many of the use cases, I had responsibility for the accounts, uh, for logistics, for training, for all of these kinds of things that this technology is essential to. Dr. Marin Lead is executive director of the National Spectrum Consortium. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. Great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions 
uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision, that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there've been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. 
So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business.
Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.